to the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, wellbeing speaker, educator, and coach. I have taught and worked in schools across metropolitan and regional Australia, and I am dedicated to supporting big-hearted educators to prioritise their wellbeing and take courageous action despite the everyday pressures of school life. Because I want educators to know, you don't have to sacrifice your health, relationships and happiness to be a great teacher. Together, we are going to learn the lessons to help us teach well and be well. Let the learning begin. Hello and welcome to episode 111 of the School of Wellbeing podcast. I am your host, Meg Durham, and today we're going to be exploring psychosocial safety. You know, the terms psychosocial safety, hazards, psychological safety, these are words that we're hearing more and more. But what do they actually mean? In this episode, I have the joy of chatting with Dr. Paige Williams about her new book, Your Leadership Blueprint, How to Foster Psychosocial Safety at Work, co-authored with Dr. Michelle McQuaid. Paige is an author, researcher and PhD in organisational behaviour, a trusted advisor and mentor to senior leaders across business, government, education and beyond. She uses a potent blend of neuroscience, psychology and her own 20 years of experience leading businesses around the world to help leaders see the rules that they need to break in order to break through and lead themselves, their teams and their organisations to thrive. The results are dramatic and measurable. Paige is a returning guest to the podcast and in episode 44, we discussed her book, Own It, Honouring and Amplifying Accountability. In today's conversation, we discuss why psychosocial safety matters, the importance of emotional maturity at work, how to cultivate a culture of care, and so much more. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Dr. Paige Williams. Paige, welcome back to the School of Wellbeing. Oh, thank you so much, Meg. It's a delight to be here with you again. Today, we're going to be talking about your new book, Your Leadership Blueprint, How to Foster Psychosocial Safety at Work, co-authored with Dr. Michelle McQuaid. What do you hope educators will gain from listening to this conversation? Well, look, I think that there is a lot of unknowing about this at the moment, and yet it's actually legislation in most states around Australia. So whether people are in a leadership position, a role or not, it covers all organisations, including schools. And so this is something that is going to become more and more relevant. We need to get our heads around the language. And certainly as uh, Shell and I wrote the book, it was very much with a view to translating some of this legalese language, which can be quite overwhelming and scary, into something that makes sense to people and leaders in their everyday roles in the workplace and really to understand where there's an opportunity here. You know, we're in the school for well-being, right? Where there's an opportunity, what the opportunity is that this legislation offers and how there's a really big and uh, that we want to focus in on and encourage people to talk about. Paige, it is so true about this language piece because I know myself when I see words like psychosocial safety, psychological safety, I get a little bit overwhelmed just looking at the word. So could we start with an understanding of what is psychosocial safety? 
So let's understand that they are both relevant to workplaces, but they talk to different parts of the workplace, okay? So I reckon a nice place to start with psychosocial safety is with a researcher and academic called Maureen Dollard, and she's been working on the idea of a psychosocial safety climate for a while. So we're going to start with Maureen's definition and then kind of grow it out from there. So she defines a psychosocial safety climate as a shared perception of organizational policies, practices, and procedures for the protection of workers' psychological health and safety that stem largely from management practices. So you can see there that in that definition, this is something about kind of the practices of the organization, the processes, the systems, the structures at the organizational level, and their impact on the psychological health and safety of people in that organization. So as we kind of take that and go, all right, well, that's quite an academic, what does it really mean? Well, the reality is that every job involves a level of psychosocial hazards that have the potential to harness. And so if we look at this idea of psychosocial safety through the lens of the legislation and why it's all bubbling to the surface now, psychosocial safety is actually about what happens when we reduce the potential risk from psychosocial hazards in the workplace. And I think this is the thing that we need to kind of, we can use to differentiate is that psychosocial safety is an outcome of us reducing hazards, reducing risks, and therefore increasing a level of perceived safety. Psychological safety, on the other hand, is the great work of Dr. Amy Edmondson and others. And that really talks more about a team climate, right? It's very much about a team climate where we feel safe to show up, to be vulnerable, to take risks without fear of consequences. So you can see, whilst they're both broadly about workplaces and organizations, one is about what happens at the organizational level, including management practices, and we'll, we'll kind of dive a little bit deeper into that. Whereas psychological safety, certainly Edmondson's original work on it, and even before that, it, it's about a team climate, and it's about the dynamics and the climate of the team in terms of how safe do I feel to show up, to take risk, and to be vulnerable knowing there won't be consequences if I do. So why does it matter in the workplace? For better or worse, the way that we work together, it's really logical because we're all beautifully human. We're all beautifully imperfect in our very perfect ways. We've got diverse personalities. We've got diverse values, life experiences, skills, different jobs, different demands that come along with that and different hopes about what good looks like. And this all makes our relationships at work complex. If you add to this, and here we know we're talking to people who work in schools, I'm sure you we all know how dynamic and complex our work environment is. So even small changes in a goal, in a timing, in a deadline, variations to team or leadership can increase the perceived psychosocial risk that we experience. So why does it matter? Look at one level because it speaks to the very lived experience that we have at work in a way that workplace health and safety legislation hasn't before. And so, you know, what I love about this legislation, like it's focused on the human experience of the workplace. It doesn't look upon workers as being machines that don't have these emotional and relational experiences of work. So it puts that front and center. 
So I reckon one of the reasons why it matters is not because it is a legal requirement, although we're going to come on to that. It is, in fact, such a big leap towards well-being-based workplaces and that being a legal imperative. Now, for those of us in the workplace well-being space, as we are, Meg, like we've been banging this drum for a while and we certainly know that legislation is a lag indicator. Like if this was already happening, we wouldn't be needing to legislate. And yet the, the statistics show that when we compare the compensation, the time out of workplaces for physical injuries versus kind of mental injuries, then it's down in single figures in terms of uh, the percentage increase over the last five years. And it's up over 60% in terms of those kind of psychological, social, relational reasons uh, for not being able to come to work. So legislators looked at this and went, wow, in the same way that we legislated for safe workplaces in the, you know, in previous decades, the attention now at last is turning to, no, there is a subjective, emotional, relational experience of work. And that's what this legislation speaks to. And that is so exciting to really consider the humans in our system and what the impact of working in that system is having on the human. And that really speaks to what we're seeing more and more in organisations is that we're going from this 2D model of people are meant to just produce and perform, be a robot essentially, what you spoke to earlier, to a 3D model of, hang on, humans are complex. The way that we interact with each other is quite complex and also we need to be held accountable for certain practices that are happening in our workplaces. Absolutely. And that's what this does. It goes beyond saying, you know, the ergonomics or, you know, the, the physical safety of a workplace to the emotional, relational and psychological safety. And look, I would think, I think that our psychological safety um, workplace practices have been in place for a while in terms of mental first aid in the workplace. But this whole idea of there being kind of emotional and relational aspects to what it means to be in a safe work environment. This is where this, this legislation is taking organizations and specifically leaders into new ground. So who is actually responsible for the psychosocial safety in a workplace? Let's talk about the legislation. So this legislation is now grounded in the international standard. So there's the international, the ISO 4503, the ISO 45003, and that was released in June 2021. So this has been kind of in the space for a while. It's now being adopted in different ways and at different paces in countries across the world. So UK, Canada, US, various European countries. WorkSafe Australia developed model work health and safety laws, and most states have adopted those are using the ISO 45003 as the basis. Victoria, however, though, and I'm going to speak to this explicitly because we're based in Victoria, Meg, both of us, have delayed adopting the legislation. They are the last state in Australia to do so. But recently, WorkSafe Victoria established a specialist psychosocial inspectorate to investigate psychosocial hazards in Victoria. So whilst they haven't adopted the, the model the, that WorkSafe Australia have put in place in terms of regulations, in terms of kind of defining what good looks like in this space for other states to follow, 
Victoria have now, WorkSafe Victoria has now established this specialist psychosocial inspectorate. So it's not, that's where it, the seed crystal isn't in Australia. This is something that's happening internationally. And, and I think that's a really interesting thing to see on an international kind of stage where Australia is at in it. And we are certainly, for the research that Michelle and I did for the book, we're certainly towards the front in terms of picking this legislation up and putting it into place. Large organizations are seeing that this is going to be a very big part of their compliance issues going forward. But I want to speak explicitly to the and that I mentioned in the intro, and that is that this is more than a compliance requirement. This is such an opportunity for our organizations and for leaders to go, okay, now, now is the time for us to put a compelling case around well-being. And so this is really where in any organization we can have a conversation around reducing risk and leveraging possibility at the same time. Because when we look at how to reduce psychosocial hazards, the research that Michelle and I did for our book, and we collaborate on something called the Leaders Lab, and the Leaders Lab Workplace Survey 2023 dives deep into burnout, psychosocial hazards, psychological safety. And what we found was that psychological safety is like a superpower in terms of reducing the risk of these hazards, right? So the connection between like we, we separated them for understanding, but now let's understand how they connect together. What we found, and we did not do the research seeking this answer, but what we found was when we have levels of psychological safety, whether that's at the individual level, what in my first book, uh, Becoming Anti-Fragile, I called personal portable psychological safety, which is kind of what have you got in your backpack of life? Um, what is it that's in there that's going to serve you? Have you got things that's not, that are unhelpful, like beliefs or values that just no longer are helpful for you? Do you take those out? So personal portable psychological safety is like, what do you carry around with you all the time? How safe and okay do you feel in your own skin with who you are? Because how we see ourselves is how we see the world. And this was the relationship that we found in this research. We went to 1,000 Australian workers. We've been doing this now for like six or seven years. But this year we took a particular dive into um, psychosocial safety, psychological safety. What we found, and we were surprised, was that those people with higher levels of personal portable psychological safety perceived their workplace not only to be safer, so if we look at a health and safety perspective, but also to be more caring. And so this idea that actually personal portable psychological safety allows us to see the possibility of, of psychosocial safety in our environment. And why is that? Because when we've got personal portable psychological safety, the way that we interpret the data coming in from our environment, how our leader speaks to us, how our team member looks at us, what goes on in a team meeting, those kinds of dynamics, whether we are allocated particular work tasks or not, et cetera, et cetera, comes from kind of a, a healthier perspective of the world generally. And so there is a direct relationship between levels of uh, personal psychological safety 
and the perception of working in an environment that was safe and caring. Um, and that was fascinating to us. So they're separate, but they have a relationship. And that really speaks to my personal experience over time that as I've gathered this more portable sense of psychological safety, I feel that I can weather the storms a little bit. I don't see a side look and think, oh no, they hate me. I'm never going to get the job here. Interpret everything really, really personally. It's like there's just a little bit more buffer. And in the buffer, there's more curiosity. There's more problem solving. It's a different way to interpret the world. And I often think of the crowded house song, wherever you go, you always take the weather with you. Brilliant. Yes, absolutely. And so what is that weather? Are you constantly in a a swirling storm or or is it quite a clear day and yeah, clouds come and go, but you're not constantly in the clouds. And so we measured it at the individual, at the team and at the organisational level um, because both Shell and I are kind of systems. We work with a systems perspective on things. And certainly because the psychosocial hazards are an organisational level um, idea, or and they're not just an idea, they're an organisational level factor to be assessed and addressed. How things are happening at the individual level, at the team level, and at the whole organisational level is relevant to these things. Amy Edmondson's research, other people's research, even the applied research that Edmondson did at Google, none of it suggests that psychological safety is the panacea, right? It's not the silver bullet. It's not going to guarantee that everything a team tackles will go perfectly or that mistakes will never be made. And it doesn't mean that we're always going to feel on top of the world or that team members will never disagree, argue with each other, feel frustrated with each other. It doesn't feel mean that we get rid of the time pressures of work, that we'll never feel uncomfortable and stretched. Because what it does mean is that we hold ourselves and each other to those highest standards of performance that we know are possible and accountability in a way that means we don't leak drama, we don't leak emotional energy, but also in a way that doesn't require us to be best friends, right? And so there's this beautiful thing around psychological safety, which means I'm okay being me and I'm okay with you being you and our focus is on how do we do the best work together rather than on any drama that might move us away from that. And so this is where psychological safety enables us to have the right conversation at the right time in the right way with the right people. And that's how it helps us not only reduce the risks and hazards, but it means that if they are there, we get to have the conversations around them earlier. What's coming to my mind, Paige, is it's almost like an emotional maturing that's happening in the workplace. I absolutely agree, Meg. I heard um, a beautiful phrase the other day, psychological maturity. That's what psychological safety asks of us. It asks us to be psychologically, emotionally, relationally mature, to not take things personally, not think that you're trying to get at me or, or do anything personal, but that actually we are trying to do the best work that we can together. And this getting rid of drama and holding each other supportively accountable to be the best that we can together and at an individual level, like this is the, per- this is the what's mine to own. And as you know, like we've talked about my book on accountability, so I'm big on that. Well, what's yours to own and what's ours to own is to do the work that we may need to do to develop our own personal portable psychological safety 
so that we have as healthy a perspective as we can on what's happening in our workplace. Yes, there's always an invitation for us to grow and learn and build that self-awareness. I'm curious to go back to the idea of hazards. For an educator listening, what would be a psychosocial hazard? Okay, yeah. So there's lots of legal language around this. And so when Shell and I wrote the book, we were like, how can we blow this up and help people understand exactly what the legislation is speaking to? So we've put the hazards into four buckets, right? And the first bucket is around work design. So for example, a lack of role clarity is a potential work design hazard. We're not clear in the understanding of our role and responsibilities, then we, it can cause confusion, it can cause frustration, and that creates psychological stress, which is a risk, right? So that's an example. Another example might be unachievable job demands, right? So there's too much or too little work or there's not enough time for completion, right? And so we're not talking about these being something that happen just occasionally, because one of the key things about whether a hazard is a hazard is that it's ongoing. So frequency, intensity, and duration, FID, they are the three, if you like, lenses through which something is assessed whether it's a hazard or not. And so for something like unachievable job demands, like we're having this conversation in term four, right? And we know that in schools, Term four is, oh my goodness, how am I going to get to the end of term? There is so much to do. We've got end of term stuff. We've got planning for next year. We've got reports. We've got, we've got, we've got, we've got, we've got, let alone end of, end of year celebrations and all the acknowledgements that need to go into those important transition times in schools. But we know that there is an ebb and flow to the nature of job demands over the year. And so in something like job demands, it's when it's in that duration. Is there an intensity and a duration that actually turns something from what might be just an ebb and flow into a hazard? But some of the other hazards, and I'll, I'll point them out to you when we come to them, doesn't matter about frequency, doesn't matter about duration, because the intensity of that hazard means it only has to be a one-off and it's a hazard. So work design hazards, a couple of examples there. Social support hazards is the next bucket. And within that are things like bullying, harassment. So these things like frequency and duration doesn't matter because the intensity of something means it only has to happen once and it absolutely is a hazard, right? So it's not, there's a nuance, which is, which is good, right? This is not necessarily a blunt tool that has been legislated to reflect the nuance of human experience in the workplace. So work design hazards, social support hazards, work condition hazards. Now, the one that we have found comes up most often in this is poor change management. So what the legislation is speaking to here is that when change is poorly planned, is poorly communicated or executed. And what this means is it causes confusion, it causes anxiety and concerns around job security. So you can see that like in terms of work conditions, yep, there's poor change management, there's a poor physical environment. Um, and so that can be poor quality, poorly maintained environments that cause us stress. Um, but equally, things like remote or isolated work are also included in this workplace conditions group of hazards. Um, and this is where you're isolated from 
support from others. And so you're not understanding how your role is connected or interconnects with others. So you feel a sense of disconnection from the team. And I, I reckon that's a, a really important reflection of our experience during COVID and understanding the impact that that has on our psychological health. And then the final one, the final bucket is work experience hazards. Um, and this speaks to things like traumatic events at work where there might be a life-altering experience or a life-altering event that, that had such a severe impact on well-being. So again, it doesn't have to be that there's a frequency or a duration to this. The intensity of it can immediately make just one event uh, a hazard. Violent and aggressive behaviours and poor organisational justice also falls into this. So things like what might come under that, things like if you feel like scheduling and rosters and rotors, if that's a part of your workplace world, if you feel like a less pleasant shift time and you seem to constantly get that, that's the kind of thing that would fall into poor organisational justice. Look, there's more on this in the book. And Shell and I did a whole podcast series um, where we spoke to a beautiful lady from Minter Ellison, who, uh, the law, law firm, who actually took us through. We had a chat with her around, well, what would that look like? And what happens if and where are the boundaries? So I can send the link to that so that you have that in the resources from our conversation Excellent. today. And Nate. I highly recommend listening to that podcast series. I found it so enlightening. There's so much we can learn. And also I'm curious at this point to really understand what does it look like to deliberately cultivate a culture of care? Yeah, so this is the and. This is us coming back to the and, right, Meg, because the legislation states that the, the burden of responsibility is on workplaces to create what they call a psychosocially safe work environment. And yet it's also specifically stated in the law that the primary responsibility rests with what's called the person conducting a business or undertaking, so the PCBU. Um, and that includes employers, self-employed people, and in some cases, volunteer or an employee who has some level of control over the work being carried out. The bottom line is where the rubber hits the road with this legislation is with leaders and their leadership practices. Um, and again, look, part of me goes, hooray, hooray at last, legislation that recognises where the stuff actually happens in organisations. And look, Gallup Research has been saying for years that 70% of workplace experience is mediated by your direct supervisor. So no matter what level you're at, if you're at the most senior level, still 70% of your workplace experience is mediated by whoever you report to right? Or whether you're at a junior level and again, it's the same. So the practical execution of the responsibilities falls on the shoulders of leaders, which is why in our book, what we talk about is don't just use this, please organizations, don't just use this as a tick box exercise, use it as an opportunity to really encourage and enable your leaders to build a toolbox of practices that actually mean that they're creating this psychosocially safe, what they call a psychosocially safe work environment and that we would call a culture of psycho psychological, social and relational safety. And we use the acronym of CARE, C-A-R-E, to unpack what that means at the individual level. How is it that we have self-care? Because I know we've talked about this before, 
Meg, often, particularly teachers, like I've worked with teachers and school leaders and educational leaders more generally, and they're all about other people, right? I'm so in admiration and awe of, of teachers who go in every day with the primary purpose being the children and the students in front of them, right? So, but actually what they have to do first and foremost is go, is my oxygen mask on? Is my oxygen supply turned up? And the same is true of this. Like, are we doing owning what's ours to own around our own psychological safety? Um, are we caring? Are we showing ourselves self-compassion? Are we appreciating, understanding what our strengths are, understanding what we're doing well? Are we owning what's ours to own in terms of doing the work that we may need to do in order to build our personal psychological safety? And do we have the emotional wisdom to allow ourselves to ride the natural emotional ups and downs of the lived experience? So, you know, in terms of our own care toolkit, first and foremost, are we taking care of ourselves so that we can show up in a way that creates a climate and culture of care with and for others. That makes complete sense, Paige, to really think about care as a deliberate action. It's not going to happen by default. It's about what are we doing to create a sense of care within ourselves and within our organisations. Absolutely. And it starts with you. You know, it's that classic meme, isn't it? But it really does because if you're not doing it, then... How is it that you are role modeling it for others, whether you're in a leadership position or not, a formal leadership role? How is it, are you, are you role modeling it for others? So look, what, what could it look like? I'll just give you a couple of examples of at the me level, what it might look like for to put this care toolbox into action. So look, one of the things that we can do around encouraging responsibility is that internal radio that we all have where we talk to ourselves. Well, when we hear that internal radio kind of speaking quite harshly, you know, I can't do that. Add on the word yet. So it speaks to the beautiful work of Carol Dweck and growth mindset. And just like, yes, encourage responsibility, but be gentle with it. I can't do that or I can't do that yet. And then think about, you know, we're on a learning curve. What might be the next step for me on this learning curve? So just a, a gentle, caring way to encourage responsibility. We were to think about at the we level, so if we move on from the individual to thinking about what could we do in terms of bringing care that will help us reduce psychosocial hazards, you know, in a group level or in a, a dyad, then something in, in terms of appreciation, the A, how is it that we could create clarity around job and role responsibilities through the lens of strengths? So it's a beautiful kind of tying in the idea of strengths-based job crafting, but actually using that tool to actually create clarity around who's doing what and how is it that we're playing to our strengths as we create clarity around that. Now, in my book, Only, I talk about an accountability cascade, and that can be a really useful tool to use for this. So what's been beautiful to see is how much accountability underpins the reduction of some of these many of these key hazards. So that could be one, but doing it through this strengths-based lens so that we're appreciating all the strengths and talents that we have in the team and using that as a leverage point for people to feel confident and clear in what they need to go forward. And then finally, at the us level, if we think about kind of culturally as a whole, what could we do so that we've done some things at the individual levels and things at the team level 
What's an example of what we could do at the kind of organizational level? I reckon one of the things that we're really poor at in organizations is asking for help. I often teach this into the most senior leadership groups so that they start to role model it and cascade it down culturally as this is what good looks like in this, in this environment. So something like a, a 10-minute stand-up meeting where teams can share what they're working on and ask for any help. And what this does is it breaks down this siloed thinking that I'm in this on my own, I can't ask for help, and everyone's out to kind of for their own needs and wants. And it, it breaks that understanding down. And so you can see some of those relationally based hazards would dissolve if we're creating a culture that allows asking for help as part of a high performance strategy, not from a place of not feeling enough. Yes, it is so powerful to look at it from each of the levels, the me, the we, and the us. What do organizations get from deliberately putting resources, energy, and time into creating more psychosocial safety in their workplace? We are separate from each other. We are almost like competitive. That dissolves. So because when we're building a culture and a climate of safety and care, it's very much that we are all in this together. And that, that the thing that we came back to again and again as we had our conversations around, if there were one thing that a leader could do, what would it be? And it would be encourage conversations, encourage conversations. And so conversations around what's going well, conversations around where are we still struggling, conversations around what are we learning, conversations around where are we going next. We call this the safety check chat. It's not high stakes. It's just a, it's a learning conversation. Now imagine the difference that comes through having conversations like that earlier and earlier. So they just become the currency of a culture, right? There is nothing that's stuffed under the bed left to fester. There's nothing left unsaid in an appropriate way and received in a way of how are we learning from this? You know, I can tell you about engagement. I can talk to you about performance. I can talk to you too about customer service. But what it comes back to is, is that people are able to have the right conversations about the right thing at the right time in the right way. And that one thing is what unlocks so much around the psychosocial hazards, getting, getting to them before they even become a hazard, when, when there is a potential for there to be a hazard, or if there is one to help resolve as much as possible around that hazard. So yes, there, is, there are performance impacts, there is engagement, there's customer service and satisfaction. We can go through all of those typical outcomes for organizations, but I reckon the critical piece in this is it unlocks us from thinking that we can't have the conversation, we can't say what's going on, and we don't feel safe to. And unlocking that is the thing because what comes from that is transformational in teams and organizations. Oh, Paige, you have given us so much to think about, a map to the future. To wrap up this incredible conversation, I'd love to invite you to finish four sentences. Are you up for that? Absolutely, I am. I am inspired by? I am inspired by teachers because I love, I couldn't do it. And I have two beautiful young women who have been through the education system and I'm forever grateful for the teachers 
that help them and for teachers that help all young people. I think you are amazing. When life feels hard? I ask myself, what would love do now? And take bringing myself back to love takes me out of ego. It takes me out of separation of them and us or me and others. It takes me away from othering and it puts me in the space of compassion and generosity and curiosity. So when life is hard, I ask, what would love do now? An underrated skill is? Ah, uh, holding space. Holding space for yourself and holding space for others. I reckon we, are, we often try to move to, we think that support looks like solving and sometimes it isn't. It's just holding a space big enough for ourselves or others to rattle around in uh, without there needing to be anything other than the rattling because the rattling is the thing. So holding space, I think, is a very underrated skill. And I'm looking forward to. I am looking forward to 2024. Oh, my gosh. I've got so much going on that, that is exciting. I've got two books coming out. I've got a whole set of surveys to help people kind of understand where they're at with their leadership. I've got a summer program of setting up 2024 with what good looks like. So, yeah, there's lots of exciting stuff um, just on the other side of my fingertips when I've typed all the words for them. Aha. <laughs> Paige, thank you so much for giving us an insight into the world of psychosocial safety and for the incredible work that you do year in and year out. You're creating high-quality content that really helps us to make sense of our work life. So thank you for your work and thank you for being a guest on the School of Wellbeing podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Meg. And I just want to put a huge shout out to my co-author, Dr. Michelle McQuaid, who has absolutely smashed the understanding of this legislation open. Um, and I encourage you to go to the Leaders Lab, uh, look at all the resources we have there and encourage you to make contact with Shell or myself if we can be of any further help. Thoroughly enjoyed chatting with Paige, and if you'd like to dive deeper into the world of psychosocial safety, I highly recommend Paige and Michelle's book, Your Leadership Blueprint, How to Foster Psychosocial Safety at Work, and the related podcast series. To learn more, see the show notes for all the links. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with anyone you know that would benefit from listening. To learn more about the ways that I can help you and your school community thrive, visit my website, openmindeducation.com. There you can book me to speak, learn about my game-changing wellbeing programs, or download my free five-step energy guide. You can find all the links from today's episode at openmindeducation.com forward slash episode 111. Thank you for listening to this episode of the School of Wellbeing, and I look forward to sharing more heartfelt conversations with you next week. Until then, take care and take deliberate action.